Welcome to the Driving Change Podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network, where we live at the intersection of neuroscience and storytelling. If you love great stories and you love understanding the mindset it takes to be a world-class change agent, then join us as our fascinating guests from all walks of life unpack their unique journeys of perseverance and passion, of expertise and experience, and be inspired to use your own story to drive change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Uh, today's guest is someone that you're going to recognize the topic is going to be perfect. In fact, many of you might recognize this individual from um, following him and being a part of, of his thought leadership on YouTube. Dr. Alex Lyon is with us today. And, and Dr. Lyon is, man, he's a uh, He's a bit of a star. He's a bit of a YouTube sensation. He's actually a professor of communication at SUNY Brockport, New York. But he has nearly now pushing 600,000 YouTube followers on his communication coach channel. And he's done workshops on communication and leadership for over 20 years. Um, he's a fellow believer and uh, his faith is important to him, like you guys know it is to me as well. Family guy. He does a lot of teaching, research, and writing, all on workplace communication and really around leadership as well. He's a PhD from Boulder, Colorado, where he got his PhD there. Nobody cares about that, right? We know that. What we care about is how can he make us a better communicator, both personally and professionally. He just uh, recently launched his latest book, Positive Communication for Leaders, which is probably doing much better than the one I wrote, which is Negative Communication for I'm kidding. I didn't write that book. Um, and I think uh, we're going to get into that a little bit as well. There's some incredible, just practical ways to communicate more effectively in that book. We'll talk about that as we go along. So Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Happy to be here. Our, uh, our listeners always know this, and the guests, I give you the one heads up, which is let's start with, let's go as far back as you care to go and tell us the origin story of Alex Lyon and, and where you came from, maybe those values and beliefs and how they evolved over the years and how you wound up being this amazing teacher, instructor, mentor to so many today. Tell us that story. Well, I grew up in Rhode Island, which is a place where not many people are from, but I had a great childhood there, a wonderful family. Uh, in terms of my faith journey, I was kind of going to church a little bit when my parents dragged me, you know, but it wasn't really anything uh, personal at that point. I went through college and I was a musician. I wanted to be a full-time professional musician. I was the lead singer in a rock band in Rhode Island, but then I decided the music business wasn't for me. It was just, wasn't really going anywhere. And plus it's a strange business to begin with in terms of making a future in it. And so before I was even really... A, a serious believer. I I just prayed. I said, God, give me some other kind of passion besides music because I loved it so much. You know, music is amazing, but I knew I it wasn't right for me. And even then, God answered. I and opened doors to, for me to be a college professor. I fell in love with the field of communication, and it was, you know, all gas pedal from that point. I went on to grad school, got a PhD in Boulder, like you mentioned, became a professor. And along the way, was invited to church by my now wife. I only said yes, Jeff, because she was pretty. I'll tell you that. I'll be honest, okay? What do they call that? Missionary dating? Where you're, you're, <laughs> so that's what she was doing. And um, I, But I, I loved it and started reading the Bible for myself, became a tried and true believer, been following Jesus ever since. So then 
somewhere along the way, I started doing consulting and workshops on the side because I love the practical side. I like being in the classroom. I love the theory, the research, but I want to make it useful for people, not just theory in a book, but what can we do with this? How can we change our lives, our relationships, our leadership with the power of communication? So I started doing workshops and then noticed that I was on YouTube for everything that I wanted to learn how to do, like how to you know, swap out a garbage disposal to how to test tire pressure. And I thought, let's see what we can put on there about communication. Found some other good communication channels that were my mentors really, looked up to them. And I've been posting videos now for seven years and it's grown into something incredible that is, uh, I can only explain that uh, God's just blessing it. Uh, there's no other explanation because there's a lot of great, just killer channels out there and why mine is succeeding is um, sometimes a shock even to me. And so here we are now talking about it. That's that's awesome. Incredible. And I think, you know, that's no small feat, right? To have that many followers on a YouTube channel. That's, you just didn't fall off the turnip truck and make that happen. You know, that happened over a course of probably time and a lot of hard work. And, you're, and to your point, probably a little bit of favor along the way. So... That's great. Let, let me ask a question before we get into some of the, 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 the skill, the art and the science of communication, which is your expertise. I'm curious when I meet a professor today, because we have them on here on staff and we have a lot of partnerships, with a lot of professors. And, you know, my daughter just graduated from the Ohio State University in May and she has a secondary education degree. And her and I had a really hard to heart talk. Uh, she ended up instead of going into education, she ended up going on staff at Young Life and one of the conversations was just how anti our values and beliefs universities have become today. And when it comes to communication and there's so much tension out there today between higher education and some of the, maybe this, I mean, maybe I won't say what well, some of the biblical values are just some of the universal human values that many of us grew up with. Have you found that to be a challenge for you and, and how you've operate inside that, that ecosystem today? Yeah, it's a strange a uh, strange time for Christian professors. You know, I'm not, I don't work at a, I work at a public, a state school. So uh, I can't go into the room and just proselytize, you know, sure. so there are restrictions in that way. There always, always have been on state professors. But more than that, there is a strange movement over the past at least five years, maybe more, 10 or more, where there's a, a lot of a lot of politics in the classroom, never before yeah. to levels I've never seen when I was going through school. I barely knew where my college professors stood politically, ideologically when I was a student. But now it seems like the main conversation, you know, is values. And oftentimes those values are not the values that I believe in. Thankfully, Jeff, I've got tenure. <laughs> so what I do is, even though I can't process everybody and the first week in my classes, all my students, they all know I'm a Christian. I just say it. And I use examples that mention my pastor, that mention going to church. And I still play bass on the church band sometimes, you know, and I mention those things and they hear it and they get it. And then what that does though, is that it's, it creates a really great atmosphere for all of my students who are churchgoers. And so they get more vocal in class and feel like they can be themselves. And they, then they're really the ones who end up driving any kind of discussion. And they're free to do that because they're students, they don't work there. And uh, yeah, I just try to make a welcoming place for everybody. You know, I love everybody. 
Well, as they say, the best sermons are caught, not taught, right? And I think just the way the way you carry yourself and the way that you you treat others and the way you lead them is a great example of that. And I, I feel like, and not to take this down, this we'll, we'll move on from this subject, but it's been on my heart for a while too, as the year comes to a close, a close and you reflect on another year, is the, the you know the word of inclusivity seems to be the buzzword over the last couple of years, but it's it's at the at the at the exclusion sometimes of of dissenting voices that don't believe in some of those things, and so um, I think it's a challenge. So I'm glad to hear you found a nice way to continue to live those values out and be an example and a light on a shining hill on an otherwise darkening storm cloud mountain, (laughs) which it could seem like. So, so let's get into a little bit about um, your philosophy on, on communication. How how would you describe at at its just core form? Like what is communication and what makes the way that you approach it slightly differently than maybe the masses? Well, the word means a lot of things to a lot of people. You know, as I say, you could ask a hundred people, to explain what communication is, and you'll get a hundred different answers. So every there's an, and there's really no wrong answer, but I really see communication as a skill set, just like any other skill set, a learnable set of very concrete behaviors that you can put into practice to have a greater impact. You know, if you take someone, for example, who is really good at whatever their technical skills are, whether they're an engineer or they're in IT, anything. And then you add on to that communication skills. The person with the better communication skills is going to have an increased impact. They're going to have an outsized impact and influence because they've taken that extra step of taking what they know and figuring out a way to share it with other people, to teach people, to persuade people sometimes to change their mind or to change their direction. So I see communication as a skill set to cope create and collaborate, to share information, and to build relationships. And I don't really think that I see it all that differently than other people. I think what I've been told by others, however, is that I managed to boil things down into behaviors that are really actionable and not keep it just a general conversation about communication, but get really actionable and say, here's like the three things you need to do. If you want to get rid of fillers. Instead of saying, um, or, uh, what can you do? Or if you want to make better eye contact, here are the three things you can do. So I, I try to make it extremely concrete and take all the mystery out of it. What, wait, you mean you're, you're an academic and you're trying to be practical and application, not just theoretical? Who, who are you, Alex? I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, you're, you're not wrong about that. You're not wrong because uh, I, I work in a great department. My colleagues are all amazing but I think that you're right. Academia has an, a reputation for being all theory, no practice, being very ivory tower and separated from everything that's happening in this in society. And I think that's a wrong turn. Yeah. I think if we don't equip people for real life, not the classroom, but not just a discussion behind the walls, but for real life, if we don't equip them to do that. I, I don't think we're giving them their money's worth. So I really focus on being practical, equipping them for the real world so they can go out there, tell their story, share their message. So I was doing a keynote last week with a group of leaders out on the West Coast and I have a slide and I like to have a little bit of fun with it. And I asked the group and I would love you to to expound upon this is I I asked the group just with a a, a sentence that's typing up behind me, are you a good communicator? Yeah. And that's the only, that's the only line. That's the only question that's on the slide. And I I look around this room of 500 people and I'm like, what do you think? Are you a good communicator? That's a tough question for a lot of people. And I had, you know, some people nodding yes and some people shrugging their shoulders and some people shaking no. And then, and then immediately it, it follows, the next question follows, how do you know? Right. 
I guess that's the question that I would pose to you today is how does one know they're a good communicator or not? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, a lot of people think they're good communicators and you're right about that. Like if they talk a lot, if they if they talk easily, they think I'm a, I've got the gift of the gab, some people call it. Well, it might not be a gift for the people around you. <laughs> if you're a motor mouth, you know, if you're going on and on and never asking anybody any questions. So how do you know? It really often depends on how people are responding. You may think you're a great salesperson, for example. And I don't teach sales, but like this is a great example of how you can measure this. You may think you're a great salesperson. But if you're not selling anything, if the customers aren't responding, then you're probably not a good salesperson. And in the same, or, or you're a stand-up comedian. If you think you're funny, but the audience doesn't laugh, then maybe you need to keep working on your jokes. So I always say, well, how are people responding? If they are giving you feedback that you need to work on some things, some obvious skills, then you probably need to work on them. If, however, they are complimenting you on your presentation or how you run meetings or how you handle Q&A, then that's positive feedback. So I would say it all comes down to feedback, how people are literally telling you you're doing or how they're responding. They might not say directly, Jeff, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about when you tell stories, but you can see the feedback on their face. You can sense the non-response when your story just sort of dies, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're you're dying up there and you don't realize it. you have to pay attention to feedback. That's how you know. And that's so interesting too, is, is that emotional intelligence plays such a huge role in that because if you have low self-awareness and you're not actively paying attention and you're not either you know asking for that feedback or at least paying attention to the feedback yeah. around around you, whether it's and you're to your point, whether you're in a sales conversation or a coaching conversation with an employee or maybe you're presenting something or heck, maybe you're trying to get your kid to eat broccoli. Um, if you're not paying attention, you have low self-awareness. You, there's a lot of people that don't know that they're not very good communicators because no one's either told them or they've never asked the question, right? That's right. Yeah. And they think, and they think everybody else is the problem. <laughs> if you're one of those people that thinks everybody else is the problem, then that might be another sign. Yeah, it could be. Well, when you think about the practicality of what you teach, and we can get into the book too a little bit, because I think that's a great, you, you have it really chronicled so well in, in Positive Communication for Leaders. How did you uh, come about that book and, and the way you approached it? Because you, you approach it very specifically and almost linearly, but very applicably to topics. Like here's a very, from a skill standpoint. And the reason I'm asking this is, as I talk to a lot of folks about, especially as a leader, we tend to communicate, well, not, not, not just a leader, everybody. We tend to communicate intuitively, but not intentionally. So therefore not consistently because we haven't looked at it as a skill to your point. So tell us a little bit about how you, you tackled the outline of that book and why you chose the topics that you did. The book was inspired by, Julian Miravel, the co-author of the book, Julian Miravel, he's a good friend. We've been friends since grad school, literally decades ago now, and we've written on and off together and collaborated. So he wrote about this model of positive communication. 10 years ago, he came up with it and wrote a a book called The Art of Positive Communication. It was much more of an interpersonal one-on-one book, which is his area of focus. And then uh, he said to me, man, I want to write a book, um, but all of these People I'm pitching it to keep saying, you need to write a leadership book on this. And I said, yeah, we talk all the time. So I said, yeah, you know, I want to write a leadership book 
on communication, but I can't quite seem to find the right focus. And it was like, we were like, Hey, wait a minute. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? So we, it's, it's comes across as really deliberate because we built the whole book around Julian's model of positive communications, those six key communication behaviors that you can approach intentionally. It's like a, a syllabus for your day, syllabus for your week in terms of what do I need to work on this week? Well, these are the six key behaviors. And if you work on all six, it really becomes a very well-rounded approach to working with your team, certainly one-on-one and even organization-wide, how you can implement these across the culture. What are your favorite two? I don't want to give them all away because I want people to go get the book, right? So let's, what are your... I'll tell you one, I'll tell you one that's my favorite because no one talks about it, but the first key skill is greetings. Greetings set the entire tone for how the rest of the conversation goes. And we know this because if you ever get blown off, someone's ignoring you and doesn't really connect with you in the beginning of a conversation, it becomes really strange to keep going, especially if you have to work with that person after you feel slighted or even insulted. Sometimes you'll say hello to someone and they won't say hello back in the office. And that's, that's when the relationship starts to get sour. You know, when we don't greet each other well, we don't respect each other, we don't connect with eye contact, with hello, with how are you. We don't do those pleasantries. We used to do that, I think, culturally, and we've moved away from that. So greetings is one that we hit pretty hard right in the beginning of the book. And if you can start the conversation on the right foot, you're really setting yourself up to collaborate in the rest of the conversation on task. So that's probably my favorite. So why do you think people struggle with that skill? We struggle because greeting is all about moving in the direction of others. And that means that you're taking the first, you're making the first move. You're putting yourself out there. And anytime you walk up to somebody, you could and try to greet them. You could get rejected. You know, you're taking a step and it's like asking somebody out. Like when I first asked my wife out and she said, no, thank you. I'm not interested. You know, you think, oh, wow, I really wish I wouldn't have had that conversation. That's usually not that dramatic day to day, but someone just might ignore you or not give you the warmth you were hoping for. They don't, they're not reciprocating. So you're, you're putting yourself out there. You're risking rejection and, and it feels awkward. We're much more comfortable having people initiate and start the conversation with us, approach us. But initiative is hand in hand with leadership. So we're saying in the book, this is a leadership behavior. You have to initiate conversation, move in the direction of others, break the ice. And, and, and by the way, Jeff, anytime you have a difficulty with someone, whether it's a coworker, a spouse, a supervisor, the first thing that disappears is the greeting. We withhold the greeting. We don't want to face it. It's difficult. And so that's why we believe it's one of the most pivotal behaviors because if you don't start there, you can't go anywhere in the relationship. That's really, really big right there. I want to pause there for a second because I'm thinking about just all different interactions. It, it doesn't mean the relationship is necessarily damaged, but there could be some level of tension. So in my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I know when we study, look at the, you know, the neuroscience behind self-preservation and, and the risk of loss and fear and how the brain operates that way and all that kind of stuff it really inhibits us from doing these things. But what you're getting at that I haven't thought about this this vein before is, Either the relationship might not be damaged, but I might be so focused on self that I haven't even considered another person. So therefore, that's self that's self serving. So that should give me some a pause. Or the other is there is some tension there, and I don't realize it, but subconsciously I'm not willing to greet because I don't want to address the potential tension. Is that 
that what you're saying? 100%. You're right on, right on the money. And so what we're saying is, yeah, you might need to take some time, right? Sometimes you have a, oh, you need a little break. Yeah, you need a little break. But then whose responsibility is it to reconnect, to initiate again? You can't put that on the follower to say, I'm going to get, you know, extra courageous today and go say hello to my boss. We're, you know, we're in a role. If we're a follower, we're in a role and, and the leader is supposed to lead. And we believe that one of the communication-based responsibilities for leaders is to connect with their people. And so it's up to the leader to connect. And leaders go first. And that's always been yep. the, and then I think the other piece too, just from a you know a psychological standpoint is, is there's been so much work done over the last decade on vulnerability, right? And that many times as leaders, when we have the title of leader, therefore we're supposed to have the answers and we're not supposed to necessarily show vulnerability. And so it can bleed over into some of that where we're almost selfishly withholding that greeting where followers desperately wanting connection, but we're either unintentionally or intentionally withholding that either because we don't want to be vulnerable um, because we fear what vulnerability could lead to, um, or we are just trying to show that we're all credibility all day, which is not going to drive the deep level of connection and trust required to be an effective leader. And that's how I've always looked at it. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I do. And it actually, you asked for two and I only give you one. So here's my second favorite now that you mentioned it, disclosure. And uh, self-disclosure, leaders do not naturally gravitate toward talking about who they are, what their story is, who they are outside of their role even a little bit because of that barrier, that shell, that mask that leaders often wear. We're supposed to be invulnerable and sharing about even our small weaknesses makes us feel vulnerable. It's this thing that I've been talking about. I have a magic wand right here. So here's what happens. When you disclose, when you say, here's a little bit about me, here's a weakness that I have, a small weakness. We're not saying you got to you know, tell everybody everything about yourself, but yeah, something that you struggle with maybe in the past, a little failure that you got past. You're disclosing about your background. And like a magic wand, one of the most common things that will happen is the other person will reciprocate. They will disclose something similar. And that's when you literally feel your emotions change. You feel yourself bonding in relationship with the other person over your self-disclosure and reciprocity. It's like exchanging holiday gifts. You feel like, wow, we just deepened our connection, which is so important because as a leader, we feel like we can't exist outside of the job description, our job title. But when you when you puncture that, you, that's where the gold is. That's where the relationship forms. And that's where your team and your people will start doing anything for each other to, to move forward, to make a project work. Because now you're doing it not just for the project, but you're doing it for each other. And it's a really powerful relationship deepening act to disclose. So for those who are just listening and not watching on video, if you also thought that his his magic wand was a metaphor. No, he literally had a magic wand he pulled up. So just so you know, I for do. those listening, <laughs> if you felt it, if you felt the energy of the magic wand, if you're just listening, driving around <laughs> the car. Um, and, I, and I think that's where so many of us get in trouble. We, we Again, we're either so busy and consumed their task dominant network, task mode network brain, a part of our brain is just constantly focused on what I have to do, what I have to do, what I have to do. But the moment you step into a role of leader, 
which there's lots of ways to lead, right? But when you're, uh, you can lead laterally and you don't have to have the people reporting to you. But the minute that you have right. someone responsible, you're responsible for, that becomes such an important, powerful skill because it's part of, it's probably the primary part of a leader's job, right? To help yeah. create an environment where others feel included, safe, and productive. And the best way to do that is, is disclosure is a great skill to be able to do that. How much is too much? I get that question sometimes. Yeah. Well, you know, you don't want to share everything because it's maybe not fitting for the workplace. You don't want to get too personal too fast. So our recommendation is the book in the book is to disclose a little bit and then see how they handle it. And then use your judgment on disclosing more. But you can always talk about professional struggles that are from the past that might be similar to what the team is facing now. You can talk about your life outside of work a little bit, your family life, if you're comfortable with that. You can, you know, share a bit about your, your life's journey. You don't have to tell people like some health problem, right. you know, that you're struggling with. You might, you know, you might say I'm struggling with some health stuff without disclosing, just so they don't jump to conclusions about what's going on with you. And they, they might fill in the blanks in unfavorable ways, but you know, use you have to use your judgment. Every situation is different. We were working with a, a lady not long ago that worked with. She was the only female on the team, and she's like, "These guys do not want to hear about my family life and whatever." And we said, "We get it. You know, use your judgment. You know, you have to read the room on your situation." We're not saying tell everybody everything, but most leaders we know can go a little further, and you'll often be pleasantly surprised at the results when people start reciprocating and you feel the team bonding. Yeah. And I don't know if it's been your, I would imagine it's been your experience as well, but in our world, it's leaders will constantly make excuses for why they don't do it. Yeah. And well, it's not really because we make everybody that we've ever worked with. They, they got to develop their own leader. Why story. And they have to be able to communicate into multiple situations, whether it's five minutes or 30 seconds. And it's got to be a little bit vulnerable. It's got to be kind of where you come from. It's got to be built on the values and beliefs that are universal. And it's got to be something that shows other people that you're a relatable human being. And, uh, you know, when you start to do that, it's so funny because it's so uncomfortable for most people because they're in a situation, i.e. a workplace environment, where historically they've been conditioned to not do that. That's right. And so how do you coach people out of that to where they see it as a, a superpower more than the kryptonite that their self-preservation brain is telling them it is? It's funny that you bring up superpowers because I'm a big fan of Marvel comics and Marvel movies. And many decades ago, their superheroes were perfect. But the creator, Stan Lee, said, we've got to make them more relatable. And so he gave almost all the superheroes in the comics, some kind of flaw that the average reader could relate to. It's very hard to relate to Superman because he's he doesn't really have any personal weaknesses. Yeah, he has a kryptonite, like you mentioned, but he's not he doesn't struggle with ego or with alcoholism or with anger, right? Like the Hulk or Tony Stark. But the Marvel comic heroes all have humanity in them. They all have that flaw. And when you let people know who you really are, we tell clients, you become much more approachable. You become a real human being. Nobody expects perfection from you anymore. They can relate to you. They see themselves in you. And that's way more powerful than some kind of cultivated image that is meant to look like they are a cut above everybody else. It's very hard to relate to leaders who project 
nothing but the ideal. It's hard to relate to them. It's hard to feel like you're passionate about working under a leader like that. We like it much more when we can relate. And one of the ways we relate is by showing people that we're just like them in many ways. Yeah, it's so hard too, right? And I think when I look back at the younger me, um, so much of that I wish I could have went back and, and coached myself on in my early to mid-20s and beyond and probably even earlier than that. Um, because it is such a, you have to arrive at, you know, you got to kind of deal with some of the junk in your own brain trunk, as we say, right? To recognize yeah. that, to become really comfortable in your own skin. And it kind of really circles back to identity and your purpose on this planet and, and why you believe you're here. And if you don't believe that you have value to others, you don't believe that your story matters and you don't believe these things that anyone cares, or there's a lot of fill in the blanks of why I won't do that. And some of them are pride related and others, some of it is the opposite of that, where it's fear related. Either way, it, it, it's, it's all kind of mounts up into this, I hate to say it this way, but you're, you're robbing people. Yeah. You're robbing people of the intimacy of a great relationship with a leader that they would run through walls for because of either fear or pride. You got it. The relationship to us is at the center of this book and the center of my belief system. If you're a leader, then the bottom line, regardless of your industry, is the relationship. The relationship will outlast oftentimes the organization, will outlast you know, year to year revenue reports, you know, will outlast new product launches. Years later, I know guys in their 60s and their 70s that still talk about their high school football coach and the relationship they had, even after their coach has passed away. That's the kind of impact a relationship can have on somebody. Companies come and go, but relationships, and I believe this, can in a way be eternal even. They can, you know, go beyond uh, this life and into the next in many ways. So I don't think you ever lose. There's no way you can lose by investing in the relationship. And I think that's what leaders have to start thinking more about is not their image, not their charisma, not their high profile, but the quality of their relationships with their people. Boy, if, uh, if Dan were here with us on my team, you know, he's Mr. You just, he, he would be amening in the background 50 yeah. times, right? Cause he's big on that starfish, the relationship piece there. Yeah. That's huge. It is, it is huge. And I will say that when I think about, and I'm curious as we kind of round third here, head for home, we have so many inputs coming into us now that we never used to have before. So managing relationships has become much more complex than it was when we were growing up. And what, what advice would you give to these younger, you know, the, even the, the millennials are now, believe it or not, gosh, they're up to 42 years old. But, you know, the Gen Zs are in their 20s and millennials are 27 to 42. And then the alphas are coming up behind them in a completely different world mm -hmm. than you and I grew up in. And so you, you teach a lot of these college kids, obviously, every day. Um, what advice do you give them on how to process from technology to the way the world has changed to how all of those different and various inputs are impacting us, maybe not in a great way, in, in how we communicate to build relationships? Well, I'm sure it's very similar to advice that you've given people. You have to just be very selective about what you expose yourself to and how involved you get on social media. Like I'm, I'm on social media. It's basically LinkedIn and YouTube. And a little bit of Facebook to stay in touch with old friends. But like some of my students, they're on their phone 10 hours a day and they're totally detached. 
from reality because they're in the internet reality. And so what I say is you got to, you know, don't, don't, don't hesitate to unplug if you're feeling overwhelmed. Don't hesitate to get off some of those platforms. But then the other thing, it really comes down to the simple, the simple practice of you prioritize the person who's right in front of you. Whoever you're in the room with, one-on-one in a group, those are the most important people right now. So don't be distracted by what might be happening on your phone, the fear of missing out. Don't be distracted by what is going on the internet. Just focus on the person in front of you. And at least for that interaction, you're going to be present. You're going to invest in the conversation and in the relationship. And it'll probably go much better than if you were somewhere else in your mind, because all of that that you mentioned, Jeff, it doesn't, it's not just when we're looking at it, but it stays, you know, it stays in our mind. It clutters us up and it fogs our thinking. So focus on the relationship, you know, put your phone away, put it out of sight and turn it off completely. And and I think that that is the discipline required to do that for the younger generation. And I'm trying to appreciate it, right. And try to have a little empathy with, for them, you know, we didn't grow up with it. So yeah, we can set it. It's still, by the way, we've, we've looked at it and there's tons of people looked at the studies on it. It's, it has the same uh, reaction in the brain dop- from a dopamine act- elevation standpoint as cocaine. Yeah. Our, our, that little phone does in our pocket. And so we've, we're raising two generations now that are becoming addicted to it, just like it's a drug. And, and it's hard to just say, put it down. Turn, you know, it, it's, it, you wouldn't tell a Coke addict, hey, just stop using Coke. We'd give them help. <laughs> so I'm not suggesting we need to put all of our kids in technology rehab, but there is a discipline required, right, to get, to be able to do that because they just, their brains have rewired themselves for that dopamine response reward of being on that technology. Yeah, it's, it is a tough nut to crack. So I'm Generation X, so... I honestly can leave my phone at home and not realize I left my phone at home for a long time. I'm not tied to it, but younger people are, it's the first thing they do. And the last thing they do each day is they get on their phone. And so it's a tougher nut to crack for younger people in terms of the addiction level con- connection they have to it. I'll give you that. But I mean, it really does start with just daily choices. Like if other people in the room, it doesn't take too much discipline to turn the phone off and pocket it, at least for that 10 or 20 minute conversation. We got to start somewhere. It's so true, right? Well, that's the you know, back to the tiny habits stuff, right? <laughs> that's so good. You know, you know, it's funny you say that. As we close, I was thinking, I'm Gen X as well. When I say uh, all the time when I speak, like Generation X is the, you know the greatest generation. I get eye rolls. You know, obviously, the, the, most of the greatest generation have passed away now, so we're going to reassume that mantle. The boomers just forget about it. You guys, the boomers forget about it. No, but I was thinking about that when I would leave home, I would panic if I didn't know where my wallet was. Yeah. That, that was the thing. Like, oh my gosh, where did I leave my wallet? And now our kids are, oh my gosh, where's my phone? And then I realized when my son was home for a break recently, he's a freshman in college, his wallet is attached to his phone. Right. Like it's literally magnetized to the back of his phone. I'm like, it's this, it's the same thing for him. It's all, it's all in one location. So, well, where can, uh, where can folks learn a lot more about you? I know we've got several websites we can go to, your personal website, your book site. We can get you on LinkedIn, YouTube. T- tell us a little bit about specifically where we can learn more about you. You can always find me on YouTube. It's Communication Coach Alexander Lyon. And then I am really loving LinkedIn lately, so feel free to come find me on LinkedIn. Over there, it's just Alex Lyon instead of my full name, I believe. So you can find me there and you'll see my face. I look like a communication coach. 
Yeah, perfect. And uh, the book is called Positive Communication for Leaders. It's available on Amazon and probably everywhere else you get your books. You can also go to positivecommunicationforleaders.com if you want to learn a little bit about the book and buy it from there as well. Well, Alex, this has uh, been a privilege. I'm honored to have you on the show. It's always great talking to a fellow communication junkie as we've been talking about addiction. Um, I'm addicted to that same thing you are. Uh, Best of luck to you. We'd love to maybe have you on later in the year next year and, and get an update from you and see how things are going. That sounds great, Jeff. Thanks for having me. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.